Good stuff. Yeah. Wow. By the way, Julie, did you guys sing that when you were with the Glenn Miller Orchestra this last two weeks? I probably not. Hey, thanks. That was terrific. That's sort of the Renaissance version of what a friend we have in Jesus. Um, and um, that, <laughs> I mean, it is. Jesus is my friend. Now, you're probably asking, or maybe you've asked yourself this before when you looked at our series card and saw that this particular Sunday I was going to be talking, and my theme would be Jesus the homeboy. You probably thought, now, why would, why would he use those terms? Why would he use that? You know, it's not particularly, I mean, we've, most of us now probably have heard that phrase, homeboy, uh, or homies. Um, uh, well, why would, why would Rich pick that up? Well, let me show you the definition, first of all, all right? Now, I, maybe this will kind of help. What is a homeboy? Um, Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary says it this way. It's a noun, first of all, not an adjective, which is, I think, uh, key. A boy or a man from one's neighborhood, hometown, or region. Didn't know that was in the dictionary, did you? Um, a little further, little further on that, that's a slang term used among hip-hop artists and so forth. Um, and so now... You say, okay, what does that get to do with Jesus and what you're talking about? As we're talking about this series, The Real Jesus. Um, so I have my own little, not definition, but sort of description of why I chose this term. It's kind of a cool term, and it's kind of hip in some places, probably not where most of us hang out, but, but um, it, it's, it's, it is descriptive, whether you want to say homeboy or homegirl. Um, let me show you my description of it. It's not a definition. It's a person to whom I can go to. One of my hometown boys or girls. A person to whom I can go to who knows the real me. They can see beneath the spin, the posing, the at times less than authenticity. They, knew who, they know who I really am and without pause, love and accept me. You have some friends like that? Psychology tells us you probably will only have three or four friends in your whole life like that. There are some people who don't have any friends like that, who just accept them. You let your hair down when you're around. You're just, it's, just, it's just you and them, and they know you. They know all about you. They know stuff that you've been through, stuff that you haven't been through, bad stuff that you've done, good stuff that you've done, major disappointments that you've been a part of, and they just love you anyway. Hopefully you have a mate like that. It's the neat thing about marriage, it's proper, the proper view of marriage. You know, my wife knew, thought she knew what she was getting when she married me, but she didn't. Neither did I. We didn't know how each other would respond to, you know, dirty diapers and screaming kids and the hormones of teenagedom and, and the jerkdom, really, of teenage. No, I'm not, they're not like that. Uh, I'm remembering that the wrong way, aren't I? And... Um, we didn't know how each other would respond to that. Major disappointments, major job situations that would put one of us into a tailspin, major personal thing. But yet, there's still that love and that acceptance and that care. That, that's a homeboy, right? and, and, and to, be, to be politically correct, homegirl if you want to. You know, that, that's what it is. You know, a person to whom I can go to who knows the real me. They can see beneath the spin, the posing, the at times less than authenticity. They know who I really am and without pause, love and accept me. I've, I've wondered, you know, this week was a significant week in, in uh, terms of our brethren in the Catholic faith and naming of a new pope and everything. And I, and I always think about these things in sort of a twisted way and think about, 
You see all the pomp and circumstance, and I don't mean this disrespectful, disrespectfully to those of you who are, who are uh, of the Roman Catholic faith, whether formerly or currently. Uh, but I, I did think about it a number of times watching all the pomp and circumstance, which there's nothing wrong with. I don't happen to be bent toward that, but there's nothing wrong with that. But I thought, I wonder what it's really like when they get behind that stuff. And, and, and you know, one of the cardinals, you know, that's the whole thing too. You know, that whole thing, you know, I, I, this, just interjection upon this interjection. This whole cardinal thing, you know, I remember the first pope that I remember being elected, or whatever you call it, appointed in 1958. I was eight years old, okay? Getting a few looks on that one. I was eight years old, and I remember when Pope... John, I think, does anybody know for sure? I think that was Pope John who was appointed in 1958. Do we have any Pope experts here? Anyway, um, was it Pope John? Do you know? I don't know. Anyway, I think it was Pope John who was appointed. And I remember hearing, and you know, the news, of course, wasn't as prolific as it is now. It wasn't just everywhere. Uh, you know, in 1958, I hate to tell you, we just had gotten our first color TV, which was really a big, cool deal in the Teeter's house. But... Um, so there wasn't a lot of news about it, but I remember it because I had some friends who were Catholic, and my mom and dad tried to explain it to me. And all I could think of was, why did the cardinals elect the pope? How come the reds don't? What's the deal on that? I don't understand that. Couldn't understand why the cardinals would elect anyway. Um, went right over the head of somebody there, but anyway. Um, or the Yankees, or the Mets. But anyway... I've wondered so many times if behind the scenes of this thing, if maybe there was, you know, the cardinals kind of getting together. Hey, hey, Joe, man, you made it. Give me five, baby. Give me five. You're the Pope. I mean, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're all homeboys together. I, I don't know. Again, I, I'm not making fun. I just, they got to, I mean, you know, they can't always be on either. But anyway, so... Everybody needs some homeboys, all right? That's the point. Some homegirls. Um, one of the things that we all desire is to be accepted for who we are. Victor Hugo said this, Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced we are loved. said that in Les Miserables, by the way. To be convinced that we are loved. Not just to be loved, but to be convinced that we are loved. One of my favorite authors, and he's a, he's a, a psychologist, and... Um, just a real solid person of faith, Paul Tournier said this, at the heart of of personality is the need to feel a sense of being lovable without having to qualify for that acceptance. Wow. Of being lovable without having to qualify for that acceptance. That's at the heart of all of our personalities and our needs. St. Paul put it a different way, the apostle in Romans chapter 17, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 7 Accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. Then God will be glorified. So he says we need this. So here's what I've done. I have put together three very simple things. I'm going to go through these initially very quickly. And then I want to go to the Bible and show you some things of of how Jesus really does this in your life and in my life. Some of these verses that I'm going to show you may be familiar with you, may be vaguely familiar, I don't know. But we'll see. But what I want to do right now is just talk about the essentials, really. The essentials of, a, of, a true, of true homeboys or girls. Okay? Um, in another way, I put it this way, things that we're all looking for in life that can really, this is really what I want to hit, that can really ultimately only come through a relationship with Christ. Now, here's my challenge. And I got kind of a, kind of a, 
kind of an interesting challenge today because we all come at this from different aspects. Some of you here have, have had a relationship or been in relationship with, with Christ for a long time. Some of you for a short amount of time. Some of, some of you are still thinking about that. That's terrific. It's a good place for you to be, just to be thinking and, and, and exploring and maybe uh, in some cases, you know, really examining it in different ways. So my, my challenge is to try to present this to you in, that, in this kind of a way and get you to think through this wherever you are. And, um, and well, let me give them to you and we'll just, we'll just go through there because these are ultimately, hopefully you'll find some of these things in, 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 in someone or ones around you, but... but even then, people disappoint. Husbands and wives still disappoint one another. Families, we still disappoint one another. There's really only one person, if you want to call it homeboy, who never disappoints. And that's Christ. Because he's always the same, he's always there, and he always issues an invitation to come unto me. So thinking about that, here's three things, very simple things. One is unconditional love. Just being loved without condition, not trying to, not having to earn it, not having to be somebody you're not, not trying to be the best of what you are, but just, just total unconditional love. We talk about it. We so rarely experience it. Hopefully, you have that in life. I can tell you, you can have that, I know, through a relationship with God if you've not experienced that. Maybe you have and haven't realized it. Number two, unconditional love. Number two, non-naive acceptance. What does that mean? That means... People who will accept you without, without having some preconceived idea of who or what they're accepting. In other words, when God accepts me, when Christ accepts me, one of the great truths of the Bible that I love is, that, is how Christ accepts me for who I am. With all my, as my professor of counseling used to always say, with all my warts and my nose and all, he accepts us. And he does. Very descriptive. If you have warts on your nose, I apologize. But we all do, metaphorically speaking, all right? Um, non-naive acceptance. Third thing, condemnation-free, without condemnation. Love without condition. Acceptance that's, that understands who you are. And even if you don't totally understand who they are, you accept them for, for who they are and what they are. And, 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 they, don't, and they, don't, they don't condemn. That's... Often the times are the, the kind of people that we call, these are my home, my homies, my homeboys, my homegirls. They accept me for him. They know the stuff I've been through. They know some of the stuff I've done that I shouldn't have done. They know some of the good things that I've done. And know whether it's failures or successes, they just accept me. Now, I, I really have twofold. I want to say two things about that. One is, number one, try to be that to people, okay? Try to be that to people. But number two, and more important than that is, the one person who's always like that is Jesus. That's why any terminology you want to put it, even in the old words of the old hymn, what a friend do we have in Jesus. Um, in the words, and now in the words, Jesus, he's my friend. In the song that we heard the, uh, the band sing and singers, which was just terrific. Jesus is just all right. Or whether we use the terminology homeboy or some other kind of terminology. And it doesn't matter as long as you get the meaning behind all that. I don't know if we, we always, <laughs> I heard a story this week, which was kind of funny. Uh, a lady who has been a follower of Christ for a long time and, and, and come up through the ranks, so to speak, in, in churches that are more traditional than we. Uh, and uh, and 
and her, she was, her son was a teenager. This is a funny story. And her, her son was a teenager. And uh, she said he came home one day. And you know how teenagers get sometimes that something doesn't go right at school. And he was just sort of feeling dejected and so forth. And, and he said, Mom, I don't have any friends. At this particular time, he's not particularly um, prone to being too interested in Christ or anything about him. But, he just, but his mother was. And he just said, Mom, I have no friends. She says, so you know what I did? I said, no, what did you do? She says, I just stood up and sung to him the whole hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I said, you know, that probably wasn't the right time for that, you know? <laughs> you can just see some teenage kid, what a friend we have in Jesus, you know? And <laughs> anyway, however you want to put it, however you want to refer to it, we have a Lord, a Savior, God, Jesus, who's that unconditional love, non-naive acceptance, and he, and, and he doesn't condemn us. I want to show you that from the Bible. Okay, by the way, let me show you something real quick. Not everybody has that. One of the great quotes that I just, I, I mean, I never, it's always kind of in the back of my mind because of this, because of who he was. The great artist Vincent Van Gogh said this, I wish they would only take me as I am. Isn't that a great quote? Sad. And of course, we know Van Gogh's life lended tragically by his own hand. Probably in part because he didn't think people could take him for who he is. And really, on a serious note, when we talk about these kinds of things, this kind of thing can drive a person to their wit's end. It can drive a person to something as serious as suicide when they don't feel like nobody accepts me. You say, that's not true. It, it may not be true, but it's what they feel. Nobody accepts me for who I am. I want you to know. I want you to know before you walk out of here, there is one person who will always accept you, knowing full well who you are, all the bad stuff you've done, all the good stuff you've done, all the bad stuff you may do in the future. There's one person who will always accept you for who you are, and that's Jesus. And I just love that. Now, let me just show you what, why I say that. I base that not on my feelings or on my thoughts. I do feel that, and I do think that, but I base that based on the Scriptures. And I want to take you to two passages. The first one is in Luke chapter 12. And this is, I'm going to read this one to you from the uh, paraphrase of the message, paraphrase of the Bible. And uh, just follow along with me. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. I'm speak, this is Jesus talking. I'm speaking to you as dear friends. Don't be bluffed into silence or insincerity by the threats of religious bullies. True, they can kill you. But then, but then what can they do? You know? But then what can they do? There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God or your reverence for God who holds your entire life, body and soul in his hands. What's the price of two or three pet canaries, birds? Some loose change, right? But God never overlooks a single one. And he pays even greater attention to you down to the last detail, even numbering the hairs on your head. We talked about this recently. So don't be intimidated by all this bully talk. You're worth more than a million birds, a million canaries. Jesus is saying, you know, nothing escapes the notice of God. And you're worth far more to him than some sparrow or some canary or some, some bird. You are of value. You are of great value to God. 
And if we could get that into our, into our minds and get our, get our arms around that, figuratively speaking, it would make a huge difference. We wouldn't be looking for all the, all the places that we tend to look for value. Looking, looking for it in some cases in relationships, one after another after another. In some cases, we look for it in accomplishment. Some cases, we look for it in success, same type of thing. Some people are still just kind of... Listen to a guy talk about that. He, he, had cha- he achieved apparently his greatest... Hard, hard to imagine. But he achieved apparently his greatest success and sense of value. Apparently in high school as a, as a sports star. And according to them, everything since that time has been going downhill. I thought that's, that's a lot of years after high school, man. That's pretty sad. For some people, it might be college. For some people, it might be after that, some great career, and then things, things uh, kind of went downhill after that. I, I, I don't know where it is or who it is or what it is for you, but here's the point that I want you to see. God, Jesus, values you all the time, wherever you are, for who you are, for who you are, for how he made you, that you're unique. And there's great value in that. And don't miss that. Now, I want to take you to another passage. And, and this was in Luke. We're going to take you to John before I go there, though. This is a very interesting passage. This is one that parts of it, at least, you've heard quoted different times in your life by different people. A lot of, a lot of, it's kind of, like, kind of like our T-shirts here. Jesus is my home. A lot of people use some of these different quotes. Whether or not they mean it or not, I don't know. But uh, just follow along with me here, and you'll see where, where we're heading with this. John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to, the, says to stone her, which it does say that in the Old Testament. What do you say? I'll just read this next little part. We'll stop after that, after that verse. Um, well, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the, in the dust with his finger, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, stone her, but let those who have never sinned throw the first stone. Stop right there. We're going to finish that in a moment. Interesting thoughts through this. Now, I've got a couple of questions. I always, approach, I always approach the Bible with questions, and I try to find answers if I can. First question is this. Is, does anything hit you on? I think it probably will. But if you just look back to verse... I got the verses there on the, on the PowerPoint so you could see them. Sometimes I don't do that. I want you to see this. But um, verse 4, um, the, well, no, go, go back to verse 3. He was speaking to the teachers of religious law, and the Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. Now, what's the first question you might have when you think about that? You know what it is, don't you? The last time I checked, doesn't it take two to commit adultery? I think so. So where's the guy? You know, obviously, the society that they are in, it's very, I mean, you know, it's, what's, what's weird about this, this will tick you off a little bit. Even today, it's news when they have raids in the city on some of the, some of the uh, houses of prostitution, and they take the names of the, of the guys that are there. It's still news when they do that. It's not news at all to arrest prostitutes. I just, 
Gives you a little bit of idea of the kind of the world we're living in, you know. I mean, is one more wrong than the other? I don't think so. But the point is, and you can think through that yourself, Jesus is looking at this, and these guys are trying. Now, maybe she was set up. Maybe, maybe one of the guys did this. I don't know what, what, what was going on here. Maybe, obviously, Jesus is being set up here. And, and the law of Moses says to stone her. Now, what Jesus does is pretty amazing because it says in verse 8. Do I have verse 8 yet? Um, Oh, there we go. Okay. And then he stooped down again. So he writes in the dust, verse 8, then he stooped down again, and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up again. He said to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. Key word, maybe. She said, And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And Jesus said to the people, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't be stumbling through the darkness because you still, you will have the light that leads you to life. What's the deal? What is the deal here? What's happening? I love this passage. Um, Was Jesus saying it's okay to do what you did? No, he wasn't saying that. Now, first of all, I got another question. I don't have an answer for this question. Um, what do you suppose when Jesus bent down and started writing in the dust, what do you suppose he was writing? I have my theory. I'll give you my theory. My theory is, yeah, it's just my theory. You can read in commentaries and they give their theories and because it's in writing and because some of them were published in 1890, their theories are supposed to be more important than mine. I don't think so. I think mine's as good as theirs. But, but um, it's a theory. Theory is a theory, all right? Define theory. It's a theory. I, I, I think he may have just maybe put down maybe initials. He knew, this is God. He put down maybe initials and maybe a date. You know, starting with the oldest. You know, you know so-and-so, his initials. Okay, you know. I mean, these guys, are, these guys are bad anyway. And they're a bunch of hypocrites. One by one. I mean, and Jesus was Jesus. He was God. He knew everything. I don't know what he, I would love to have seen this. And um, because you're sitting here going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and maybe you need, you know, need to think through that yourself. So anyway, whatever happened there, Jesus really, really kind of nailed it to him. But then the part that I want you to see is when he says in verse 10, he stood up and said to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Now, here's what I want you to see on this. Jesus didn't excuse what she had done. But he still valued her, accepted her as a person. And didn't differentiate her sin from any others. And then he said, leave, but don't do that anymore. Now, why did he say that? Just because it's in the Ten Commandments that you're not supposed to do this? Well, partially. But why is it there? Because God knows there are certain things that if we do, it will hurt. And in any society, in any way you want to, you want to count it, adultery of any kind, fornication, Use it interchangeably here. Whether they're married or whether or not, it hurts people. It hurts people. People get involved. You know, they, they, and, and as a result of that, they, they, and, and what, what Jesus is doing here is, I don't want you doing that anymore. Why? Because it's wrong. Well, yeah, it's, it's wrong because it's going to hurt you. And this is something we, we really have to have the right view of sin. We have this view of sin that, well, God's trying to keep the good stuff from us. No, he's not. God understands something that has taken me quite a few years to learn. And I'm still learning. 
And that is, when we do things that are wrong, it hurts people. In some cases, it crushes people. In some cases, it may cost a person their life physically. In some cases, emotionally. In some cases, spiritually. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Why? Because sex is a wonderful thing in the boundaries of which I've designed it, of a husband and a wife. Outside of that, it hurts people. And we see heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak of friends and family, and even some of us have experienced it ourselves, of what happens when, when things get carried away in that area of life. So have the right view of this. It's not, oh, this is really good and God doesn't want you to. It is really good and God wants you to experience the best of it in the right way. And he designed it that way. That wasn't Jesus trying just to beat her up. Don't do it anymore. He said, I don't condemn you. I love you. Now go and don't do this stuff anymore because you're better than that. I don't want, I don't want that. So let me, give you, let me give you three very simple things that, based on what I said earlier and based on these verses that we just read. And, and they are very simple. Number one, he loves you, God loves you, Jesus loves you, simply because you're you. You are treasured, you are valued. And he wants what's best for you. Number two, he accepts you, warts and all. And this is really a cool thing to me. He who knows me the best, who knows the inner struggles of my heart at times, who knows some of the thoughts that I have had that aren't very wholesome. And he still loves me, unbelievably so. That always blows me away. I can fool anybody. Well, I can't fool my wife. But I, 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 I can fool a lot of people. Can't fool God, because he knows my heart. And yet, in spite of that, in some cases because of that, one or the other, he still loves me beyond whatever degree anybody else loves me. That's pretty amazing stuff. I can find some value in that. And he never condemns. He never condemns. The Bible says later on in Romans chapter 8, and we won't go there now, but Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who've come to Christ, those who put their faith in Christ in any way, shape, or form, a little bit, a lot, whatever it happens to be, are not condemned. Now, he may do some other things in our lives. There's a word. I, I struggled a little bit this week in my preparation with this word because I, w- I wanted to say this, and I'm going to say it to you this way. There's a, there's a Christian-y word here I'm going to use, and I don't like Christian-y words, um, but I'm going to use one, and then I'm going to explain it. All right? There's a wor- Christian-y word called convicts. God convicts his people. Well, I never have liked that word because all I think of is, is the judicial system, and that's not a good thing if you're convicted you know, in, in court. Huh? You know? And so, and I looked it up in the dictionary and did all the thing, and it's conviction and being convicting is, is, is not a good thing. It means you're, you know, guilty of a crime. It can mean in the dictionary you have a strong conviction. So anyway, people say, well, God doesn't condemn, but he convicts, whatever that means in this little Christian-y terminology or whatever. I, 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 and trying to explain that a little better, here's how I would come up with it. He, he doesn't condemn, but he, but he often awakens our conscience to wrong action or wrong attitudes. Sometimes you'll be involved with something and all of a sudden you will stop and you'll think, oh, wait a minute. Why am I thinking that? Why am I doing This is wrong. I believe that oftentimes is, is the inner, inner working of God, the, 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 that, what I call that still small voice that is, that is in each one of us. Whether you want to call that being convicted or whether you want to call that 
having, having your, your conscience awakened, which I think explains it better. I don't care, but as long as you understand it. Jesus doesn't condemn. He may make me aware of something that I've done for years or an attitude that I've had for years that's wrong. But that's a good thing. He's awakening, quickening my conscience. Unlike the church so many times, big C especially, but even sometimes in churches like this, and I hope it doesn't happen here, but it probably has uh, or will. And I, I, I won't like it, but it, it might. Unlike the church, Jesus provides a safe haven for the flawed person who's made his or her share of mistakes and he desires to restore and to bring only the best into their lives, knowing full and well all along who you really are. And, this is the key part, the great value that you really do have, even though you may not realize that. Because Jesus thought you were so valuable, he went to the cross. He died, rose again for me. Now think of it, for you, individually. He would have done it for you if you'd been the only person on the face of the earth. That's value. That's value. That's what Christ has done for us. That's why whether you want to call him homeboy or my friend or my savior or my Lord or all those things put together, which is probably the best, that's what he is. Let's pray together. Lord, these are uh, so important truths. Help us, Lord, to realize them, not just on an academic level in our brains, but in our hearts. Help us, God, to understand them and, and help, help that we would be different, that we would live differently, we would act differently, we would think differently because of that. And we thank you for for who you are and how you came and suffered and died and went to the tomb and rose again to give us not just eternal life, but abundant life. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name, in whose name we pray. Amen.